Welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And my name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. This is a show where we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. This week, we have Alexa Dryansky, who is a senior vice president at Alex Partners. They are a consultancy that focuses on retail. She is very knowledgeable about the future of retail, big box versus direct consumer, the relationship between the two. We get into a bunch of these topics. So if you are interested in the retail landscape, how it's changing, how it's evolving, and how these big legacy retailers are figuring out a way to survive and innovate and hopefully to continue to be successful, this is the episode for you. Okay. Alexa Dryansky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're going to talk, uh, uh, we're going to hit a couple of topics today, but we're going to talk legacy retailers. We're going to talk omni channel retail. We're going to talk direct consumer brands and their relationship to legacy industries and legacy brands. But to start, it would be great if you would give us a little background on yourself, who you are, what you're all about. Sure. So I work at a consulting firm called Alex Partners, and I lead the market and consumer insights practice for the retail team. What I do at Alex Partners is really look across the industry to understand what are the disruptions and trends that are impacting retailers and what should they do about that. As you can imagine, uh, the industry is undergoing such massive disruption right now, even prior to COVID. COVID amplified and accelerated all of the disruption in the industry. So it's a really good time to be in consulting for retail. Yeah. Who's freaking out more, the legacy retailers or the smaller growth stage businesses that have already committed to retail on some level, but now are in a better position because they have an e-commerce platform probably, but just don't have as much in the bank account to lean on through this tough time? Well, I think everyone is freaking out or all retailers of all different sizes are freaking out, especially if we rewind back to a year ago when the overnight the industry experienced something that's never happened in the history of retail. Literally a year ago, all stores were mandated to close. So who are some of the retailers like industries, I know you can't name your clients that you work with, but like, give us a sense of what are the types of companies that you're working with? We work with retailers across all sectors. So whether it's department stores, which are really undergoing um, existential crisis right now, we work with specialty apparel retailers, brands, all the way up to healthy companies like grocery stores, which are also undergoing massive change as online grocery becomes a significant part of of their revenue these days. What are they more afraid of, startups or the shift to e-com from COVID? Oh, well, I would say the the shift to e-com is has been a challenge for retailers for years. So at Alex Partners, we've been studying how when retailers increase their online penetration, their operating profit significantly declines. And because of COVID and the spike in e-com, Why operate, is that? Yeah, it's because it's just more expensive to operate multiple channels. So there's inventory across different places. When you have um, omni-channel offerings, such as buy online, pick up in store, it's a lot more expensive to fulfill an order from a store because the labor is more expensive and it takes more time to pick an order from a store than it does 
from a warehouse. Shipping costs are so much higher when you're shipping to multiple consumers as opposed to just one DC or one store. And so all of these costs have kind of got out of control. What we see legacy retailers really focusing on in 2021 is containing these costs. So creating Omni inventory so that you can turn your inventory quicker and then really- What is Omni inventory? Oh, excuse me. So um, traditionally (laughs) retailers, it's, uh, so I came from Macy's where um, I, I worked there for several years. Everybody Both, came from Macy's, I think. I know, right? Yeah. Got it. Everybody came from Macy's or Nordstrom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the industry, um, you know, it's very small. Um, but In DTC, at, though, everybody came from where? Warby Parker. Warby, yeah. And, which is where I came from. Okay. And uh, like, really, everybody came from Warby Parker. I mean, yep. was, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We don't have yeah. anybody from Warby on our team. Come on! Not yet. Not yet. No, but we have people from away who came oh, from an away came, came from, from Warby. Warby. So that's who do you so have from it's away? It's in the lineage. Sorry, no, no names on the on the show, right? <laughs> but, but tell me offline who came from away. Two two rock stars on our team. But yeah. Recently or not recently? No, they've been for like over a year. Got it. Okay, continue. Sorry, Alexa. Okay. Um, so traditionally in retail, there have been two channels: the online channel and the department store. I came from Macy's where they literally were two different businesses with two different inventories and two different P&Ls. And so what retailers have had to do is kind of merge their inventory. They've had a really challenging time doing this though. You see, there might be um, inventory that pops up in a store, but uh, if someone buys something online, the inventory that's in the store, even though there are a couple of items, a couple of SKUs and products left on the floor, they might have sold that day. So there are challenges with fulfilling an item from a store if the product that was in the inventory list has actually sold. So what we see retailers focusing on this year is really having an accurate view of their inventory across all different channels. It's so hard because what also ends up happening is you have different motivations for different teams. So a store team is getting either commission or at least credit for the performance of their location. So they're actually incentivized to pull more inventory from the warehouse and put it in their store so that they can actually sell it and have it on the floor uh, so that their store can look better, right? But realigning those incentives is like, it's about training, really. It's about a directional shift at the executive level, and then it's about training all the way down to the associate level so that people are all marching in the same direction, which is not an issue for e-com first companies because that's how they started, right? Everyone's marching. We only sell through one channel, right? And then when you add a store to that, it's naturally an extension of the e-commerce, which for, for a company like Burrow, right, everybody knows that the online channel is the channel, and then everything else kind of supports that. So it's a natural extension. But for these legacy businesses, I hear you. It's like everyone's typically pulling from one warehouse. And are they putting it in different areas in the warehouse? Are there different teams fulfilling that? Do, do you give the store management the ability to pull from the warehouse directly? It's like becomes a cluster pretty pretty quickly. It's chaos. Yeah, and there's also, I think, an element of solving these challenges looking inward as opposed to outward to the customer. And saying, like, how does it make sense for us to operationally manage not, hey, the customer doesn't care where it comes from. If it gets shipped to them from a store or a warehouse. Now, I I understand, like, if they 
the customer cares if they're like expected to pick something up in store and it's not there because it was sold already. Like that's frustrating. But who gets credit for the sale doesn't matter. Customers don't care, right? Like they just they want. If, if I had a conver- if I had a conversation with somebody from a brand on the phone and then I go into the store. I don't want there to be some like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. That's not my department. It's like, look it up, look it up, look up my conversation with your colleague. And like, I want to continue that conversation. They told me I could come into the store and see this, like sell it to me. And I don't care who gets credit for this. And that's been a big challenge for legacy retailers. There has not been aligned incentives across all of the organizations. So they're not marching to the same metrics and um, that creates sharp elbows. The worst customer experience is when you buy something online and you go to return it in store and they say, sorry, I can't take this return because you bought it online. I think that is more brand damaging than than profit damaging. Um, you know, and what we have seen some clients or some retailers do is really break down those silos across the organization and so that they can align incentives. So for example, this year, Saks, when stores were closed, they had their sales associates who traditionally, for example, a shoe, shoe floor associate could only sell shoes. But what they had during the pandemic was they had sales associates unleash and go through the entire store and be able to sell into different departments. Not only that, they were engaging with online consumers as opposed to store consumers. So they, they incentivized store associates to sell in different ways. And that led to much higher baskets, um, meaning there were more items purchased at a given time and more frequent transactions with strong customer positive experiences. Yeah, I think I think there's been a lot of innovations from a lot of companies in, in how to navigate this video chatting with customers to virtually you know, help them shop and whatnot. And, and I think that, like you just said, lends itself to, well, if we're going to be flexible here, let's just be flexible everywhere. And like, why not let them sell their things? And it's kind of broken down some barriers. I'm fascinated by that cultural shift, the the blending of these two worlds, right? And there's a whole army of people out here that come from direct consumer brands that are really used to this, that are trying to speak one language to a legacy company. And the legacy company is saying, well... And there's this, I'm seeing all of this overlap happen all the time right now. And it's fascinating to see neither one is right. And neither one has all the answers. It is a blend of both. There's a lot to learn from legacy retailers. Like Nordstrom's an incredible business. They've run an incredible business for so, so long. Not to mention Macy's and, and all these companies, right? The world just changes too, but it's, it's fascinating right now, I think, particularly in retail, the clash of these two worlds. But the world is changing so fast. And so my question, Alexa, is who's not saying, hey, if we don't shift our business to being mostly e-com in the next five years, we're screwed. Like, who's who's saying that and committing to it? And who are the companies that are like, ah, we're still struggling with this because retail is just more you know, profitable than e-commerce and e-commerce is complicating things. Well, I don't think anyone is saying either stores are dead or we're going to be 100% digital. There is a sweet spot and yeah. especially legacy retailers, they really understand that they have to continue to operate both, but operate them in a different way that is more profitable in each channel because profitability has just been tanking. Um, I think that what is interesting to look at is a couple of different retailers. 
So recently, Saks, which is owned by HBC, they announced that Saks.com is going to spin off from Saks department stores. And it's going to be a Saks.com led business, so a digital led business. And the stores will kind of come second to Saks.com. Interesting. And this is a very interesting case study. I think this is one example of a legacy retailer kind of swinging the pendulum to the digital first area. Whereas what we see other retailers doing is they're going to rationalize their store fleet. So get rid of this stores that are underperforming because traffic is down um, and stores, you know, when traffic is down, stores don't get investment. And then when stores don't get investment, they're run down and it's a negative downward spiral from there because no one wants to shop in a store that's run down. Did they have to rethink their store footprints in general, like and just downsize across the board? And how do you do that? Yeah, that's a lot of retailers are downsizing, both cutting the number of stores that they have, but also the store footprint that they have. So for example, Macy's announced that they are launching small off-mall stores. Um, so we'll see a lot more there uh, of these Macy's locals popping up. Mm. Uh, Nordstrom has downsized. Uh, they've created the Nordstrom local model over the yeah. past five years where they launch essentially service centers for customers to come in, pick up product, have personal shopping. To moderate success, right? To moderate success, to not, moderate not, success. not a home run on the Nordstrom local front. And, you know, I think that everyone wants an overnight success. Sure. And this is Nordstrom has been wonderful about thinking about long term customer market share gains. And mm -hmm. this is hopefully something that they're betting will increase their loyalty with customers by offering them products and services in their markets. At, at a quicker speed. Yeah, it didn't feel very well. What what fascinated me about that move was when I went to the experience, it didn't feel like it like it felt non-committal, which I can mm. I can understand. I mean, it's hard to commit to a whole new brand identity for a whole new retail footprint. I get it. It takes time. It felt like are we offering like the black tux measurements and partnering with some of these smaller brands or are we like a proper service center and it felt it felt in between so it is interesting to your point you know this stuff is not overnight you know it, it move there's these are freighters you know mm -hmm. shifting direction of a freighter is very different than pivoting quickly for an for an e-commerce company you know right exactly i mean we see another legacy retailer Ex express for example it's a women's apparel specialty retail company and they just announced that they're going to have smaller format stores so everyone's rethinking how do they want to show up in a physical presence because they know what they're doing now, it's not working anymore. Yeah. I want to go back really quickly to Saks. You said Saks is spinning out their department store business and separating that, decoupling that from an e-commerce play. Are they going to put a like a CEO of the e-commerce business and then have a C and keep their executive team on their department store business? Are those two businesses going to operate in silos? Um. TBD, uh, <laughs> Confiden TBD. confidential. Con we're, we're running yeah. up against confidential information. I love it. I love it. Let me ask another question. Okay. Let me ask another question. And I'll be the cynic. So 
my chat my thought there is the issue may end up being competing uh, incentives and -hmm. competing identities and not you know i i think that the challenge with that is it's omni-channel which is i think a buzzword that most people don't understand what i think it really is is it's actually omni-channel meaning many things under one umbrella under one thing right so it's ultimately one Saks fifth avenue channel with many revenue streams all working together and i think that might be an issue because i don't think that i do think that a lot i've seen a lot of legacy retailers try a lot of these things like cool we'll just launch like we'll just launch an e-commerce company we'll just do it we'll just do a, a a direct consumer brand as well and we'll be we'll be gravy and yeah i don't know if it works or not i mean i guess we'll see there's a lot of money being spent on a lot of these things and i just i worry that some of these the the point is not to pull them apart the point is to re organize your priorities and realign everybody so you're marching in the same direction. Exactly. And at the end of the day, the customer sees you as one company and one brand. And if it's a poor customer experience, customer is more fickle than ever before and customer needs and desires are changing quicker than ever before. So if retailers aren't, you know, their departments are not in sync and they don't have their finger on the pulse of what customers want, they're going to have a significant leaky bucket when it comes to their customer file. It's hard, you just said it has to be one brand. It's really hard to do that. It's easier for a direct-to-consumer brand online to say, oh, we're gonna do a physical manifestation of our brand in a store. I'm not saying everybody does it well. There's a lot of people who fail at doing that, but Correct. I, I, <laughs> I <laughs> see any experiential retail. Correct. Yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. Not, not all of it. Come not on. All of it. Come sorry, on. Sorry, sorry. Come on. Um, not all of it. A lot of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Most of uh, but, but it's easier to do that. It's a lot harder to say we're this massive department store that has all these different brands. And then what are you? Are you a marketplace online? And if so, why would I go to your site and not Amazon or Walmart.com because I think I can probably buy a lot of the same things. Now I know if there's it's a different curation of brands and whatnot, but it's a much larger undertaking. And I think a lot of legacy retailers, um, some have done it better than others, but many of them are just like, oh, we'll just do our stuff, sell our entire catalog online. All we got to do is put it on there. That's where people are shopping. It's like, well, it's a different experience. Like go through, put yourself in the consumer's mindset. Why are they going to buy from you now online? In-store made total sense because you're you're physically there. That's how people shop. You're like, we brought all this stuff to you. You can buy it all here on the internet. Like, I can go to de- seven websites in a row without leaving my chair. So, like, the internet in and of itself is like the giant department store. Why is your website the better curation? And I think that's just, like, something that they, a lot of them struggle with. Oh, for sure. What retailers are trying to do now is embrace AI and customer data platforms in order to give one-to-one experiences for each customer. So, you know, one of the good things about online is that there is so much data out there. Traditionally, retailers have been very data rich, but insights poor and essentially action absent when it comes to customer data and insights. But what we are seeing now is that the pandemic really tipped their hands. So we have been talking about the art and science of retail for two decades now. But traditionally, retail has been such a gut-driven business. 
Because the pandemic changed consumer behavior so quickly, retailers really need to embrace new ways of understanding customer and consumer preferences so that they can change their online experience in order to acquire new customers and retain current customers and then get them to actually convert and buy more. So that's why retailers are really embracing AI machine learning to understand consumer behavior better and so that they can create a better customer experience both online buy different products um, and change the product development process to better meet customer preferences. Like the level of frustration for some of these executives of these legacy brands has got to be at an all time high about the current world that we're living in. Because if the pandemic had not happened, I actually think that on some, in some ways we were starting to have conversations about, look, direct consumer thinks that they're hot shit and they don't have it all figured out. Sometimes retail is just about get a good location, have good service, sell stuff that's on a shelf. We don't need to spend $250,000 on a, a, a floating water slide in the middle of, you know, <laughs> a pool a swimming pool you know what i mean it's like right so i think that that was the conversation and it, if if the pandemic hadn't, hadn't happened we might be talking to you about that instead today mm -hmm. where you're like wow we e-commerce really jumped into retail heavy and thought they really knew everything and we maybe over over overdid it a little bit and so we should we have a lot to learn from the folks that have been punching the clock every day and selling stuff uh to consumers at a, at a high level for many many years but now we're not able to do that. They don't get that victory lap or they don't get that moment. And it's like the perfect storm happened. And now they're like, okay, well, I guess we'll never get that moment. And now we have to evolve and adapt with it. I have to evolve and adapt. And the mindset has changed. I mean, I know from speaking with executives at very large furniture companies, there were some that were like, we couldn't believe it. We grew in 2020. Mm -hmm. And they're like, most of our business was retail and retail went to zero, but we actually grew because our e-commerce brand, yeah, like our e-commerce yeah. channel tripled in the year. And that allowed us to grow. And they're like, I didn't, and these are, these are the same people that a year or two years ago, I guess now, were like, e-commerce is something we have to deal with, but retail, retail is where it's at. People want to buy products in person and they just still hadn't fully accepted it. I think that legacy retailers are concerned about DTCs for three main reasons. So one, it's the market share issue. It's not that these billion dollar brands are concerned about these new e-commerce companies that are coming in and they're generally like hero product or hero category companies. Um, but it's, it's, they're creating more congestion in the consumer mind share. So it makes product discovery a lot harder. Secondly, DTC companies have been driving up marketing costs. So when you're a legacy Damn retailer- Damn you, Steven. Damn you. I know. My well, God. It's, it's because DTCs, they're valued based off of growth, whereas legacy retailers are valued based off of profitability. So when a legacy retailer has a flat marketing budget and their dollars don't go as far, that has significant ramifications on the top line. And when these big companies, they have such high fixed costs because of their wide store base, it really crunches the bottom line. And then I'd say the third reason why legacy retailers are concerned about DTCs is because of the capabilities that you both had alluded to earlier. 
DTCs are just more nimble and they know their customers better so they can adapt quicker to customer changes. So customer insights and data analytics, it's just in these new companies' DNA. It's so much easier for them to have their finger on the pulse of what does a customer want and then they can, they're agile, they can quickly change. Uh, it's harder when you're a $30 billion company, you can't turn the ship as quickly. So I'd say that there are, those are the three main reasons why legacy retailers are just very concerned about DTCs. So they're concerned, they make some changes internally to adapt, right, and, and better compete. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the answer is, we're not going to be able to beat a certain player. Take us through the thought process of when these big legacy players are thinking, okay, we either need to partner with some of these brands or we need to buy some of these brands. What, how, does that, how does that conversation go? Okay, so I would say there are fewer acquisitions these days because retailers just don't have that much cash available because as we spoke about before, their cash is being used for their Omni sales. So uh, there aren't as many acquisitions, but what we see legacy retailers embracing is if, if you can't beat them, join them. So what we see is there are a lot of partnerships going on right now and legacy retailers are really trying to connect with younger brands that have a different customer base. So that will bring new customers into the department store. Nordstrom is phenomenal at this. They've really built out an army of of DTC partnerships, whether it's Bonobos or Skims or um, you know Casper, they have really built up partnerships where it attracts new customers to Nordstrom, and then those customers will eventually become. The hope is that they become long-term Nordstrom customers. Can I challenge that? Mm-hmm. And I want to get not you, but I want to get your reaction to this. I think it makes more sense for the brands to do that because their new people are discovering those brands at a Nordstrom, right? Mm -hmm. I would argue like the people who went to Nordstrom and discovered that brand is going to happen way more than the person who's the Bonobos customer and then goes to Nordstrom to buy Bonobos and then suddenly is like, oh, wow, Nordstrom's great. Like that seems very one-sided. Do they, is there any risk or fear of like eventually a lot of these brands just start to, they're like, I'm really big now. I'm less profitable selling at Nordstrom. I'm going to pull out. And then Nordstrom, like they don't, they don't, they're not retaining that customer most likely. Or if they are, it's because they already had that customer because people already knew what Nordstrom was. And if the person's just buying Bonobos, they're going to buy Bonobos from Bonobos? That is a really great question. Um, we're undergoing that brand transition right now in a lot of legacy retailers. You see these vendors like Nike or Michael Kors or Ralph Lauren, which at one point were startups that department stores took on. They took on the inventory risk. They built up the brands. They built up partnerships. And then these brands got so strong and they realized department stores were actually marking down their product, so they couldn't necessarily control the brand experience. So these companies pulled back on their distribution to department stores. We're seeing that a lot of with brands that came out in the 80s, 90s, and, and very early 2000s. 
For example, Nike, they significantly cut down on their wholesale distribution and they are investing so many resources in their direct-to-consumer capabilities. This is something that a Nike can do, but I think there's a lot of runway for these newer DTCs that are partnering with department stores right now. So maybe it's an accepted thing. Like maybe eventually these brands will roll off, but maybe that's why legacy retailers have to work with these newer growing brands is because if Nike and Michael Kors leave, hopefully these new brands will grow to replace them and be that size. And then maybe eventually they'll go away. But by then, hopefully you'll have more new brands coming in. You just got to keep that pipeline hot and full. Spot on, Stephen. What we see is that the department stores, a lot of their vendors are pulling back their wholesale distribution. So there's more space in an empty store for newer brands to come in. And these newer brands, you know, the partnerships can be varied. The department store can buy the inventory outright. So it's a traditional wholesaler retailer model, or there can be shop in shops where the brand is essentially taking on all of the inventory risk and Nordstrom or the department store would not take on any risk, but they house it in their store. And so there's that. And then I'd say the, the lowest risk model is just marketplaces. So selling the department or selling the branded product on their marketplace online and having the brand drop ship the, the item direct to consumer. J. Crew did a bunch of this. Yes. Uh, with Outdoor Voices and others. That's how we work with West Elm. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I, I don't know, but we're talking with other retailers and they want to own the inventory. And we're like, why? I'm shocked to hear that. But Stephen, it shocks me that West Elm would want to do a partnership with a borough where they compete in the same product categories. We see more partnerships uh, in areas where, for example, J. Crew they sold apparel, but they did not have athletic apparel, and that's why they put Outdoor Voices on their marketplace. So what is, a, I mean, from your perspective, what do you think West Elm, why did they have Burrow on their site? I think it's because we share a lot of the same customers or the same profile, right? and their offering is a thousand times larger than ours. And so they know that our customers might buy living room products from us, but then everything else from West Elm. And so they wanna guarantee that that happens. And so it's like, okay, if, you, if this appeals to you, buy it, but then we are connected to this brand so you can buy everything else from us. I also think we're, it's a test for them. Mm-hmm. It's a test to learn like, okay, is this new model for how you design and and deliver furniture more conveniently. Like how valuable is that um, to our customers? And so that's a test for them. I don't know. I mean, so far it's been a great relationship and we've really enjoyed working with them and it's gonna keep growing over time. I think any of these relationships work super well, not always, but they can work really well in the early stages. But then as you get bigger and bigger, you start approaching that, like what you talked about with Nike, it's like, hey, we just have too much friction here. How is this going to work? I think it might work less well, though, for a product that, like an Outdoor Voices, that is a little bit more dependent on the branding and the, the, the perfect presentation of it. 
the articulation of why it's important, which they obviously do very well on their own website and with their own social media. But when it's presented via a third party retailer, they're not able to tell that brand story as completely. So just I think the the Outdoor Voices stuff with J. Crew, I think it flopped in large part for that very reason. It was like I go to J. Crew's website, which already is kind of shitty, and then I <laughs> buy a product from another brand that I really love, but the experience is just much worse because, as you know, a great e-commerce experience is far more than just going online and clicking on a product. You, the way you get there, the journey, the customer experience, all of those things go into creating a really valuable customer journey e from an e-commerce perspective. And you just can't deliver that same branded experience. But a company like Burrow, where it's like, how much better my experience is just from a product and delivery perspective for a pro product like Burrow is so different. This also touches on a question you asked earlier about acquisitions. So I think that, you know, there probably won't be that many acquisitions in retail, but if there are acquisitions, it's so that retailers can build out capabilities. So Stephen, you had talked about how you ship products differently from West Elm. You do product development differently from West Elm. And these are capabilities that are really interesting to legacy retailers. So for example, Edgewell tried to acquire Harry's last year for $1.4 billion. It kind of got tossed out by the FTC. Why Why did that get blocked in your opinion? Seriously. Uh, supposedly because there would be too much control over the grooming market. Which is um, insane. It's insane. But the, and then, you know, they went to buy another company in the, in the men's groom, a direct to consumer company in the men's grooming product. And the reason why they wanted to make these acquisitions was not because Harry's has good razors. It's because they have a wonderful direct to consumer business and they wanted to acquire the know-how of building that business. It, within CP, I, so consumer products, we, there will be more acquisitions in the year ahead. That's because consumer product companies like uh, P&G, for example, they sell their brands to retailers, which then sell to consumers. And that, um, you know, as e-commerce grows, these big conglomerates, they want to change how they do business and they want to sell to direct to consumers as well. So they will be acquiring more companies like a Harry's, for example. Are there any examples of this either having happened or you think it'll happen where you hear the big incumbents talking about certain startups and they, they don't, like, do they actually believe that they're a threat to them in the short term or are they still kind of in denial? Like they'll never be there. And have you seen any instances where it's like crap so-and-so who I didn't think was like a real threat is actually eating our lunch now. And I'm like, I wish we had responded sooner and taken it more seriously. I think that startups get a lot of mind share and they get a lot more mind share than they have market share. For example, you'll hear a DSW talking about all boards very frequently. And DSW has 8% market share in the U.S. footwear market, whereas Allbirds might have 0.0008% market share. And I don't think that, you know, in the next coming years, Allbirds is going to significantly steal share from a, uh, such a large incumbent. 
But at the same time, there are a lot of things that these legacy players can learn from these incumbents. What a great point. I, DTC and these new companies and startups and e-commerce brands have significant mind share and not as much market share as people think. I, in, in, in most categories, I think you're right. There's somewhere like mattresses, D2C mattresses own a quarter, over a quarter of the sure. mattress industry now. But we do have a tendency to put on a pedestal the new darling and direct-to-consumer, no matter what industry. Now, Casper, they've executed. You know, Casper and Purple and the 50 other companies that all do at least 10 to $20 million in annual revenue. I mean, I think there's like five that are doing over $500 million already. Right, which is insane. So, yes, that's, that's, that's an outlier here. But we do, and we talk about this on the show ad nauseum, but we have this hero culture that we've applied and the pop culturization of all of these sort of startup founders when it's like, well, the folks at DSW have been running a, they, they 8% of the market share in the U S of footwear in the footwear market is an insane accomplishment. There's a lot to learn from, from that side as well. And as, as Ethan talked about from Frank and Oak, like sometimes this disruption is not going to happen in three, four years. Some of these brands may disrupt the legacy players, but maybe over like a couple decades. There's also an element of like the e-commerce and direct-to-consumer as, as like a, a selling channel, a business model, I think is a real threat that's causing retailers, like incumbent like department store retailers to have to like rethink their model. There's some actual disruption there. The whole brand side, it's there's always been changing of the guard over time of certain brands. Brands are cool for a long time. It's very rare to build a brand that can stand for a hundred years. And so like that part of it is less disruptive and more just, this is a, like, this is always going to happen. But the e-commerce versus department stores, that's a real thing. It's a real thing. And also the capability because DTC companies are so good at understanding their customers, their customer journey, gathering data across that journey and using it to make better business decisions, that capability is something that legacy retailers think is their number one concern and their number one need for what they need to do in the coming years. And that will drive acquisition more than anything else. Correct. That's great. Class dismissed. Thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button. Take a minute, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we come out with a new episode.